Thank you for your beauty. Yeah, we just love you so much. Um, we thank you. I thank you for the healing that you're just releasing in our hearts, Lord, through your love and your affection and just your tenderness, Father, toward us. And just pray that you just pour that out on your children this morning. And I thank you, Father, that you've, um, you, you've engraved our names, Lord, in the palm of your hand and that you're holding us. How beautiful that is, Lord, to know how special each one of us are to you. And we just give you thanks for that. And we ask that we would never forget. You just remind us this morning of your great love. Remind us this morning of who you are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. So, um, this is part five of our series, Take the, take, take the Nations, Taking the Nations. And... Um, we are going to look at Matthew 28, so you can turn there, 28, verse 16, and um, I'm just going to jump right in here. Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 16, what I'm going to read to you this morning is, this is known as the Great Commission. We've looked at it many times here before. In this series, we are going to look at um, the fourfold, um, how the Great Commission is revealed to us in four different ways throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Really, the commission that Jesus gives us is a fourfold commission. But here this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew 28, continuing where we left off from last week, looking at Joshua 3 um, and, and how it ties into um, this commission. So Matthew 28, verse 16 then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So we're going to, in um, coming weeks, we're going to break that down, break these, break these down more. But this morning, we're just, this is kind of like a high-level overview of this. Um, but as we've looked at the last four weeks in this series at some of the history of Israel, and, and God, we come to understand this great commission given by Jesus in the New Testament, this great commission is the greatest mission. It's a representation of the very heartbeat of God for the world, and it's a summation of our core identity as the church and our mission in the world. The great commission is the great summons to return um, to that which we were always called to be, which is a community of the redeemed boldly taking the land of, of the enemies of God and subduing the land. And so uh, we looked at this last week in Joshua. The words spoken to Joshua uh, by God in his commissioning 
They echo to us. Everywhere that the sole of your foot shall tread, I've given you. And again and again, God, he's washing over Joshua with this command, do not be afraid. Be, Be very strong. Be courageous. Because he's sending Israel into a land that's with seven nations greater and mightier than them. History is moving to an appointed end. And that appointed end is the inevitable culmination of all things in which creation itself was founded. That is the advancing and consummation of the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. In Job 38, I love this, um, these verses here. It says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Fastened. Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So from creation to the patriarchs of the faith to the nation of Israel that descended from them to the judges and the kings and the prophets that were raised up in their times to Christ in the flesh, his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection, ascension, and his ultimate return in glory to the birth of the church, to the labor of the apostles who spilled their blood as martyrs, from the witness of the gospel from generation to generation. We are in the unfolding of God establishing his rule and his reign in a kingdom that is on the backdrop of human history that will comprehend all nations of men on all the face of the earth. Acts 17, 26. Of that kingdom, of that government, of the increase of that kingdom and government, there shall be no end. This is the promise. Thy kingdom come. This is the message of Jesus in his days on the earth. This was the burden of his suffering. This was the subject of his promises, his warnings. And this is the central theme of all his teaching from the beginning of his ministry to his ascension of glory. Acts 3.21, it says, Whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God. He's sitting on the throne of David, and heaven is holding him back until his enemies are made into his footstool. Until the very enemies of God are made into his footstool. He is held back. The Great Commission, make disciples of all ethnos, nations, every people, tribe, and tongue. The commission in Matthew 28 was not to make disciples of all souls, but rather all ethnos, of the world. This word is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. In the patriarchal times, God spoke through the prophets and he spoke to entire cities and nations. And blessings and curses were dispensed on citywide or, or national levels. And we see Matthew 15 24, Jesus, he came for the lost house of Israel. That is, he came for a nation. In uh, Luke 13, 34, he cries out for a city, the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. In Haggai 2, 7, it calls Christ the desire of the nations. We need a um, proper theology of nations. Each one of them have a, have a glory assigned to them, a destiny and an identity in God's eyes. And it's the gospel of the kingdom is to view 
God's heart for the world with a fresh perspective. That is, God is jealous over entire countries and people groups. And his passion is to have them under his reign. I'm going to read to you just a list of scriptures here. Um, Genesis 18, 18. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Psalm 2, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. Psalms 22, 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All of the families of the nations will bow down before him. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Psalms 47, 3. He will subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. Psalms 86, 9. All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, O Lord, and they will glorify your name. Jeremiah 1.10 See, today I have appointed you over the nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And speaking of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews, it says that through faith they subdued the kingdoms. uh, Revelation 2.26 He that overcomes, I will give the power over the nations. Revelation 15.4 Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So all throughout Scripture, what we see is a, a relentless pursuit of God for, for the nations. And all of this, his, in his relentless pursuit of all ethnos, it climaxes in, Jer- in um, Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In Revelation 22, verse 2, the final chapter of the Bible, it reveals that the the tree of life in heaven, whose leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. Matthew 25, verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, from his goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And here we view, uh, and we're going to look at this um, passage further down. I'm just, again, kind of giving you an overview here. But here we view that the nations were Jesus' focus when he spoke of the last days. And here in Matthew 25, entire na- nations are separated. Here is sheeps, sheep and goat nations. Jesus has given us, you and I, authority over the nations. And there's a great loss when we um, don't have a revelation, understanding of what that authority looks like. And so we're talking um, about the restoration of the apostolic ministry. And I believe it's restoration of apostolic ministry or, if you will, a spirit of Elijah revolution, which we're going to talk about um, the story of Elijah and Elisha and how it parallels and um, just the, the significance in there. But we need an awakening to kingdom thinking. We need to rebuild the foundations of understanding of the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all of the nations. Then the end will come. So what we're seeing here 
is the gospel of the kingdom must go into all the earth. What is the gospel of the kingdom? It's the gospel of the kingdom is the full message of this life. It is the message of his lordship over everything, followed with a demonstration of his lordship over everything. And so you and I, have, we've been invited into history's greatest mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So number one, we need to understand, I'm going to give you five points this morning. Number one is you need to understand the term apostle to understand the full depth of the commission that Jesus gives us. The commission that Jesus gave us is an apostolic mission. Why do we call it an apostolic commission? It's because it was given to apostles. Matthew 28, 19, who is Jesus commissioning? Matt, if we go back three verses, we read it, it he's commissioning his disciples. Well, let's look back up and let's look at Luke chapter uh, 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When the morning came, he called his disciples to himself, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Okay, this commission is apostolic. It was given to disciples that he called apostles. This term, apostle, is strategically used by Christ when he calls his 12 followers to himself. This term was not a Christian or a biblical term. Rather, this term was a secular term. The word apostle had never before appeared in the Bible. Had the Lord used the term prophet, priest, or king, his disciples and we would have immediately understood what he was talking about because we have prior examples. Rather, Jesus, he chooses a term that was being used by the Roman Empire at the time, a Greek word, apostolos, meaning sent out one. Theological dictionary and classic literature reveal the meaning of this word in various usages. This is from the Theological Dictionary. A naval expedition, a cargo ship, a fleet of ships sent with a specific objective. The admiral or commander of a naval expedition or fleet of ships. The colony which was founded by the admiral, a, a group of colonists sent overseas. A personal envoy or emissary, emissary or ambassador, a delegate. If a fleet of ships was sent to Rome to establish a new colony elsewhere, all of these were called apostles, i.e. the fleet, the admiral, and the newfound colony. Greeks use this word apostle or apostolos to describe an admiral over a fleet of ships sent out by his king to conquer other territories and to establish his government, the government of Rome, in those territories. So this word apostle is a Greek military term borrowed by the Romans and adopted here by Jesus. Rome wanted to conquer the world, but as they expanded land and their territory, the leaders of the empire realized something crucial to their survival. Unless they brought into those conquered territories Roman culture, the inhabitants of the land would revert to their previous culture and rebel against the empire. Therefore, Rome would send in Roman philosophers, judges, governors, artists, Romans that carried the heart of the Roman culture in specific ways. 
One of Pilate's responsibilities was to change the Jewish culture to be like the Roman culture. This would, would have, uh, this, all of this was the responsibility of the military admiral or the apostles. This change was to be so dramatic that if the Roman Empire came for a visit, he would feel at home as though he was in Rome. Thus, apostle is the term that Jesus strategically, masterfully chose to give to those that he would call, give authority to, and fill with his spirit. When Jesus called his disciples apostles, he was essentially he was telling them, you're called to conquer and occupy and establish culture. In order to change culture, we have to create culture. Culture that displaces the culture of the present world system. We're going to talk more about culture um, down the road, but when Jesus sends out his disciples, what he's saying to them is, when I send you out, I want you to so transform the world's culture so that if my father came into the world, he would feel as if he was in heaven. He would feel at home. Thus, when Jesus taught us to pray, he gives us an apostolic prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Furthermore, this commission given um, in Matthew 28 was to teach them, speaking to the apostles, to, uh, to teach them all ethnos, nations, and people, to teach them everything that Jesus had commanded. And that brings us into point number two. So number one, understand apostle. Number two, apostles raise up communities of sent ones. In essence, the apostolos, sent ones, are to commission more sent ones, replicating sent ones that replicate the life and the ministry and the kingdom that Jesus brought. In John 20, 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. You are meant to live your life knowing that you're sent. You're sent from the Father with purpose and mission. In John 17, Jesus says, I'm not asking for these alone, speaking of his current disciples, but for all those that will believe, speaking future tense. So we're speaking about um, to be apostolic is to come under the teachings and the lifestyle and the commands of Jesus and to become his sent one into the earth, to make the earth look like heaven. Amen? Are you guys following? Matthew 28 and the Great Commissions, what does he do? He sends out his sent ones to go and make more sent ones. And he tells them, make disciples, teaching them to do everything I've commanded you. Jesus' model was to be perpetuated in a model of multiplication, commissioning, and fathering, resulting in increasing measures of breakthrough and territory taken for the kingdom, passing from one generation to the next. And we see this all throughout the word. To Adam and Eve, go, subdue, multiply, expand God's dominion into the earth. And to Abraham, God calls him the father of many nations. In Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob, the 12 tribes, and from the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel. And we see now in Matthew, 12 apostles. Matthew 11, he sends 72. In Acts 2, the apostolic community explodes to 3,000 in a day. And so we see this, three, this theme run through the Bible, go forth and multiply. Bring the earth under dominion. It's this reproductive multiplication model. Go and send, multiply, reproduce, expand, and establish. 
The Apostolic Commission is to raise up communities of sent ones with the mission of bringing heaven. The Apostolic sends everyone out. This is its role. It's a commissioning role, sending and catalyzing the Great Commission. Sending everyone out, no one is second class. The shift to becoming an apostolic community, it takes the church and it transforms it into a missions base that is activating every single saint, every single believer in a missional mindset. The church becomes the environment seated with the supernatural as a, as a facilitator of people's destiny. That is, we are a, hev we are, we are a heavenly community called to serve the world with the reality of the kingdom and the ministry of reconciliation. There's a lot in there. But um, apostles catalyze an army to fulfill the Great Commission. Point number three. So number one, understanding apostle. Two, apostles raise up communities of sent ones. Number three, the domain of his kingdom is transferable to every sphere of society. So religious culture is often relegated to the church. We know its kingdom when it can move from the church into the world, when a culture is reproducible in your work environment, the same that it's able to thrive in, in the four walls of the church. We, we, we can um, establish culture of the kingdom in the body of Christ, we know it's kingdom when it works outside in the marketplace. If it doesn't work in the marketplace, it doesn't work. It has to be able to move into every sphere. And so um, if, you're an if you are a part of an apostolic community, you're apostolic. And that is you have to know that you're valuable in what you do. The dream that God's given you, the occupation that you uh, carry, the gifts and the gifts that God has on your life. We want God to show up in every single place, in your business, surgery, classroom, the surgery room, the classroom, government, entertainment, wherever you go, whatever your occupation is, we must not produce just churchgoers, but influencers and world changers. And that's what an apostolic community looks like. It's sending people equipped to do the work of ministry, empowered, with the culture of heaven and being loosed into our world as an influencer, as salt and light. And this is precisely what Jesus calls us to do. In Luke 19, 13, he called in a parable, he says, he called 10 servants and he delivered them 10 pounds and he said to them, occupy until I come. So this is what it means to be apostolic. We can, we can take the term and, and, and put apostolic on a sign and be, and be um, you know, Ahava Apostolic Ministries, or we can get name tags and put it in front of our name. But if we're not changing the city's culture, we are not apostolic. Because the apostolic is synonymous with cultural transformation. That is, the church is salt and light, which is what Jesus defined us as, and all the nations are to be blessed in us. If this is true, if this is how Jesus describes us, then aren't the statistics of our city a commentary on us rather than the city and the lost? If the crime rate remains unaffected, if the cancer rate remains unchanged, the divorce rate is growing, the economy is declining, 
What does that say about the people of God in that city? How do we establish the kingdom? We create a culture of the kingdom. And we're going to look at this in the future in more depth, but for now there's two ways, his presence and his word. We're sent to bring his kingdom to the earth. The culture of his presence and his word is a culture that establishes heaven on earth. Israel wasn't even to move into the Jordan rivers apart until the ark moved, apart from the manifest presence of God that was held in the ark of the covenant. And from Genesis and onward, the story of God and his people is the Lord he's seeking for a place to dwell among men manifestly. This is the story of God. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, God is seeking for a place to dwell among men. Secondly, the Word of God is our foundation for developing worldview, creating culture based on truth rather than feelings or the wind of doctrine or teachings that blow our way. In heaven, Christ is at the center, the person of Jesus in his presence. The, the Lamb is the lamp of heaven. There is no sun. That's the culture of heaven, is all eyes on Jesus. It means that we could bring up any particular theological, uh, you know, eschatological view of the end times, and all of us would have different varying views and stances on that one particular issue. But as we all put Jesus at the center, we're all gazing at him in the unity of the Spirit, striving to keep and preserve, preserve that unity. We're all moving toward a person. We're all moving toward one man. The culture of his presence in Christ made flesh, his word, that culture is a culture that is establishing his reign, his rule. And it's a culture that's um, built, an apostolic community is built around fathers and mothers. It's built around the family. The family of God um, with Christ at the center and his presence in pursuit of his presence. It's a culture transferable. So again, we're going to look at this deeper. Just This is an overview. But point four, apostles help establish church governance. So a couple points here. Um, in Revelation 21, 14, so the, the first 12 apostles, they have a significance that um, we only see with them. In Revelation 21, 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. These original 12 apostles, they hold a special place in heaven, according to Revelation, as apostles of the, of the Lamb with their names inscribed on the foundations. But beyond these 12 we continue to see the apostolic office emerge. Apostles beyond the twelve in the New Testament include Matthias, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, James, Adronicus, Junius, Epaphroditus, Titus, two named un, uh, unnamed brethren in 2 Corinthians, Silas, Silvanius, Aristus, Tychicus, Apollos, and still more references to additional companies of apostles. It continually reemerges after um, the original 12 apostles of the Lamb. So this office uh, also emerges in an important place in Ephesians 4. We have to understand these passages because to accomplish the assignment that's got, that God has given us to disciple the ethnos of the world, we need a governance model suitable. In 1 um, Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, what we find is 
two uh, governance models for church that help us piece together a complete wineskin for church government. And so if you want, you can turn. um, This is Ephesians. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Is everyone doing okay? I know I'm getting kind of technical, but this is found. We got to build these foundations. So Ephesians 4. Um, I'm just going to start verse 1. So I, I, the prisoner of the Lord, appeal you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That is to live a life that exhibits godly character, moral courage, personal integrity, mature behavior. A life that expresses gratitude to God for your salvation. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the oneness of the Spirit in the bond of peace, working together to make the whole successful. There is one body of believers and one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope. When called to salvation, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is sovereign over all and working through all and living in all. Yet God's grace was given to each one of us in proportion to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he bestowed gifts on men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had previously descended from the heights of heaven into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the very same as he who also has ascended high above all the heavens, that he might fill all things, that is, the whole universe. And his gifts to the church were varied, and he himself appointed some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers to fully equip and perfect the saints for the work of service, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach oneness in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to become a mature believer, reaching to the measure of the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer children tossed back and forth like ships on a stormy sea and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning and trickery of men." by this deceitful scheming of people ready to do anything for personal profit, but speaking the truth in love in all things, both our speech and our lives expressing his truth, let us grow up in all things unto him, following his example, who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and knitted firmly together by what every joint supplies, when each part is working properly, causes the body to grow and mature, building up, building itself up in unselfish love. Isn't that good? Man, there's just so much in there, but um, this critical word here is until. Verse 13. So, this is how long we'll need the fivefold and the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists is until we all come to the unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's an assignment that we have yet to reach. The equipping of the saints 
for the work of ministry until we attain the full stature of the measure of Christ. So this really is an extraordinary statement. It is that the church is called to mature, to walk in the stature of Christ's fullness by the Spirit in love, power, and authority that the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against it. This is Jesus' vision for the church. We can believe that we will see a glorious bride before his return. And the truth is that we are all part of this. We can all be a part of this glorious church and his advancing kingdom. The blood of Jesus qualifies us to come into the family, to get healing that we need, to get in relationships and to take our place. And if we look in um, Ephesians, there's nine fruits of having an established Ephesians for governance. And I'll just list these out to you. But number one is equipping. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Number two is edification. The edifying of the body of Christ. Number three is unity. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Knowledge. The knowledge of the Son of God. The the full measure of Christ. Number six, spiritual maturity. Number seven, not falling into false teaching. Number eight, mature representation. Number nine, each part functioning and doing its chair, share. And, and lastly, the body built and connected by love. And so it really is ten fruits. But there we have ten fruits of Ephesians 4 governance. Um, and so what we see is with the apostolic ministry, um, working together with the fivefold, with the pastoral, the teaching grace, the evangelist, the prophetic, and so on and so forth, is that God's intent is that every single believer is fully maturing in Christ in order to manifest their calling in nature as children of God for the intent of occupying the world with the kingdom. So we see a powerful... Um, we see a powerful vision of Christ for the church in, in here in Ephesians 4. So point number five, the apostolic and the past, we're going to look at the apostolic and the pastoral coming together. <clears throat> um, so this is the final element for this morning, but the power of um, apostolic ministry and what we traditionally know as pastor or uh, pastoral, you know, traditionally we see uh, the leader, the top is a pastor. And so we're learning this new wineskin and transition has to take place in the body. But as we re are being restored to apostolic ministry, understanding the importance of um, the governance model that the Word of God gives us in Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 is that we can't do away with the pastoral grace. In fact, the apostolic is dependent on it for its own health and survival. And so what we're going to look at is the transition from a pastorate to an apostolic form of government repositions the pastoral with the greater purpose of the apostolic mission. So Pastors have a grace on them to gather, and they tend to the needs of the flock. They're shepherds. Um, and so God is gathering, but he wants to do that in the context of deploying. And so pastors gather the sheep, but not 
in order to get them healthy, in order to get them happy, in order to uh, bring, bring forth grace and healing, um, but not simply as an end, end of itself, but as a preparation for being sent out to change the world and to transform the culture. And we see what we, when we take this pastoral grace and we merge it with the apostolic grace is that God is gathering and healing for the sake of deploying and sending, for the sake of um, confronting the seven nations, the powers and principalities that presently occupy a world system. So these two essential elements is the healing pools that gather with the sending rivers that deploy. So John 5, in John 5, you can, um, right, you can look at this. John 5, 2 and 4, and Ezekiel 47. In John 5, uh, we see the pool of Bethesda. And we see these five porticos of the pool of Bethesda. And what would happen is the angels would stir the waters, and every time they would stir the waters, there would be healing that would flow, and the, anyone that dipped themselves in the pool would be restored. But we see this five porticos in this Bethesda pool, and this Bethesda pool represents healing, and it's a beautiful picture of the, this five-fold ministry, working together in unity, how they cover the body of Christ, providing access to God's power, his healing, and the grace that's distrib distributed. And we even see the angelic um, and how they stir the waters. So I love to see this pastoral um, grace flowing as in a picture of the, the Bethesda pool stirring. It's a, a picture of pastoral environment in which the pastor, he's been given an anointing to gather the people and to tend to their needs. In this pastorate model, it thrives with the goals of staying together, staying healthy. And what happens in uh, pastoral models is that people come and they are counseled, made whole, they ex experience inner healing, they are taught, they're delivered, they're given relational grace, and all of this reveals the heart of a shepherd. But in addition to this pool of Bethesda, we see in Ezekiel um, 47 is that we get a unique prophetic picture painted of a different type of dynamic. Ezekiel 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house. Toward the, toward the east, for the front of the temple was facing the east, and, from, and the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. Okay, I'm not going to read all this, because just for the limited time. There's 12 verses, but you can go through this. But basically, this water's flowing from under the temple, and the further that it gets from the temple, it gets deeper, and it gets deeper. And what we see is this picture as the water is leaving the house of God, the further that it goes into the world, the deeper that the water flows. And it's a prophetic analogy or picture is that the darkest, the darker the place and the further, the more the anointing flows, the more that God and the river is supplied for us. And so what we're seeing is that there's this pool of Bethesda where the angels are stirring the waters and the people are gathering to be healed. And there's this angelic ministry happening. And there's five porticos representing uh, the fivefold ministry and people are coming together. But what we need to see is a merge between the healing pools, Bethesda, and the Ezekiel rivers that are flowing, and they're leaving, they're flowing from underneath the door of the temple, and they're going, and the further that they go, the deeper the water gets. And it's a picture, 
is that God wants to show up in the darkest places of this world. And we're called to take what's in the house and to replicate it and bring it out of the house. And so what we've got has to leave. It's got to flow out. And so um, great miracles, powerful expressions of the kingdom are destined to happen in the worst places on the planet. The river of God flows with the people of God in Ezekiel 47 into every place. So Bethesda, the needy come to a location to receive healing, but an apostolic model, there's not only a pool of his presence that's cultivated and continually being stirred, but there's a river that's continually flowing and leaving into the city, touching, and everyone that touches that river gets healed. So what we need is a merge here. We're looking at the apostolic and the, and the pastoral is that we need the pastorates creating healthy people and the apostolic creating deployment and multiplication. And so lastly, we're going to look at Isaiah 61. And you can um, turn there. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed and commissioned me to bring good news to the humble and afflicted. He has sent me up to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted, to proclaim release from confinement and condemnation to, uh, to, to proclaim release from confinement and condemnation to the physical and spiritual captives and freedom to the oppressors. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance and retribution of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion the following. To give them a turban instead of dust. The oil of joy instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a disheartened spirit. So they will be called the trees of righteousness. Or another translation, the oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild ruins. They will raise up and restore former desolations. They will renew the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And they will renew the ruined cities. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks. And foreigners will be your farmers and vine dressers. But you shall call them the priests of the Lord. People will speak of you as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and you will boast of their riches. Instead of your shame, you will, re you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, your people will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, in their land they will possess double. Everlasting joy will be theirs, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery with a burnt offering, and I will faithfully reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among, many among the nations and their descendants among the peoples. And all who see them will recognize and acknowledge them that they are the people whom the Lord has blessed. I will, greatly, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom puts on a turban and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will most certainly cause righteousness and justice and praise to spring up before all the nations through the power of his word. 
Whew, amen. So here we, we, are, we see in Isaiah 61 a powerful depiction of those that are bound be, being transformed to become those that are rebuilding the city. This is what the culture of heaven does. And this is what we're declaring of, to the world. You can be free from the cultural constraints of this earth. Because living on this earth will break you. It will hold you in captive. It will make you a prisoner. But the Spirit of the Lord God is upon us to set you free. This is our message of reconciliation. It is on us to bind you up, to heal your heart, to see an inner personal cultural transformation occur in your heart. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon us and binds us up. It opens the doors of the prison. It comforts those that mourn, bestows upon them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of despair. Verse 4, and it says, Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. Who is they? They is those that are bound. They will become the oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and destroy places long devastated. They will renew the cities that have been devastated for generations. They is the humble, the afflicted, the brokenhearted, the bound, the prisoner, the captive, in the mourning, those that were captives, but now they've been set free. They will become the oaks that restore ruined and broken down cities. This is a beautiful marriage of bringing in a healing pastoral movement, but combining it. Could this be, this marriage, the pastoral movement married to the apostolic, de deploying transformation mindset, creating a synergy that is taking the brokenhearted, the oppressed and the bound, healing them and empowering them to be the ones to transform culture and to rebuild cities. This is what we're called to build. We're called to create an atmosphere that's healing and sending and deploying people to restore the desolate of many generations.